Welcome to the First Pres podcast, which features the message from this past Sunday's worship. If you would like to worship with us in person, our services are Sunday mornings at 8.30, 9, 10, and 11 o'clock. You can learn more about First Pres at www.first-pres.org. Well, Lord, we do pray that you would still our souls that you would both challenge us and encourage us with your word to us today. We pray in the generous name of Jesus. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. Let's listen to God's word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. We are grateful for God's word. Amen. Suffering debunks God. Really? Each week during this season of Lent, we have been looking at the objections, the tough questions that are often brought up to challenge the Christian faith. This week's question has to do with the problem of suffering. This is an especially difficult problem for Christians to address because it isn't just theoretical or even philosophical. No, it's personal. Of all the questions we've been asking this past month, this is the one we feel the most. In my ministry, I have visited with families who have lost loved ones to all kinds of sudden, unexplained, undeserved calamities. Young and vibrant people with 
brain tumors, babies who died in their sleep, whole families killed in automobile accidents, the completely unexpected suicides of recent high school graduates who had their whole lives before them, the brokenness of reputable church members who succumbed to drug addiction, adultery, embezzlement, criminal behavior, leaving their families in shattered devastation. And I've had my own experiences of failure and of injustice, experience of of pain and loss. We experience hardships. We hear about oppression. We are victimized by acts of evil. We watch the nightly news bracing ourselves for the next terrible account of wickedness running rampant in the world. Will there be another mass shooting? Another natural disaster that takes the lives of thousands. Another roadblock to any sense of unity in our own country or around the world. One piece of bad news after another and we feel it. We feel it and we feel sick. We feel abandoned. We feel at a loss for any good explanation. Ah, but there is a very good reason that we feel this way. This reason, I would argue, actually points us not away from God, but actually to God. So hang in there with me. We're in this together. So the argument, which is often used against Christianity over this issue. It's often attributed to Scottish philosopher David Hume. And it basically boils down to this. If God allows evil and suffering to continue because he can't stop it, then he might be good, but he is not all-powerful. On the other hand, if God allows evil and suffering to continue but chooses not to stop it, even though he could, he might be all-powerful, but he is not good. Either way, the good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. This is a pretty formidable argument, isn't it? How do we address it, both personally and biblically? Well, let's consider the Bible. In the very first pages, God is introduced uh, as the one who created this beautiful world, and he is presented as a God who is good, a God who is just and loving and even joyful. And yet things barely get started, and we find evil and suffering are already a part of human existence. And then throughout Scripture, we find various authors and poets and prophets, those writing about the tensions and the disconnect between the goodness of God and their experience of evil in the world. Mark Clark, in his book, The Problem of God, points out this. He says, the whole Bible cares deeply about injustice and suffering. It's the story of how evil has affected us. 
Adam and Eve's fall, Cain's murder of Abel, Noah's flood, the terror of Babel, the patriarch's sins, Egypt's oppression of Israel, David's psalms of lament, Israel's exile, the killing and torture of the prophets and God's people, and the long, lonely wait for the Messiah. It goes on relentlessly. But here's the thing. The Bible doesn't avoid the question. Some religions do. No, it faces the question head on and gives the most unexpected and even glorious answer. Now, let's think about it. The problem of suffering, it isn't just a problem for Christians to solve, is it? No, I mean, every perspective, every worldview has to give an answer to the question of suffering and evil. So if you're a skeptic, an atheist, an agnostic, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, what is your answer? New Age philosophies try to explain it away by denying that evil even exists. Hinduism says that evil and suffering result from karma, claiming that suffering is just something that you deserve. Atheists will argue that because evil and suffering exist in the universe, well, then God does not. But this line of thought doesn't prove anything. It especially falls short when you consider the possibility that a good all-knowing, all-powerful God might just have his reasons for not stepping in and fixing things in the way that we would like him to. Could it be? Could it be that God might just be up to something else? Perhaps something even better. You see, we can't just assume that every case of evil is one that God could just, you know, come swooping in and and violate our free will and just kind of stop it without at the same time preventing possibly an even greater good. If God always responded to the things that we experience as evil the way that we each wanted God to, well, where would that leave us? What effect would that have on human history? Could God's seemingly compassionate, preventative actions actually bring about an even greater evil or a lesser good than if he just stays his hand? Something that you and I can't really say. Do you remember the encounter that Jesus had with a certain man who had been born blind? Remember that? We find this in John chapter 9. Do you remember the question that Jesus' disciples asked him? His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God may be displayed in him. And then... Jesus healed the man. The man's blindness was not the result of his sin or the sin of his parents. God's glory, God's power, his greater good was displayed in this man's healing. 
have any impact on certainly the disciples, the onlookers, the man himself, his parents, generations of Christians who have read this, and even you and me today. Another important way to approach this question is to consider the possibility that rather than the existence of evil and suffering disproving God, that it actually proves God. Think about it. Every notion of evil and injustice is actually powerful evidence for God's existence. Do you remember that famous letter that Martin Martin Luther King Jr. wrote while he was suffering in jail in Birmingham, Alabama? In his letter, Dr. King said this. He said, the only way to know whether a human law is unjust is if there is a divine higher law from God. He said if there was no divine higher law, there would be no way of knowing whether a particular human law was just or not. If there is no God, a person might say, well, that law is unjust, but that would be only according to their own human standards. Are you with me? You following? And why should their standards then be privileged over the standards of someone else? Well, let's take that a step further. If there is no God, then how can we say that any historical event is unjust? Think about it. What is more natural? If there isn't anything but nature, then there is nothing more natural than violence, is there? It's how you and I got here, according to that viewpoint, natural selection, right? The strong eat the weak. So if there is no God and all we have is nature, well, then what is wrong with violence? It's perfectly natural. Somebody who really understood that was Jean-Paul Sartre. In his signature essay on existentialism, he wrote this. He said, if God does not exist, there's no longer any possibility of an a priori good existing. It is nowhere written that one must be honest or must not lie since we are now on a plane where there are only human beings. Dostoevsky wrote, if God did not exist, well, everything is permitted. That is right. If God does not exist, we have neither behind us nor before us a luminous realm of values nor any means of justification for any behavior whatsoever. Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying that if there is no God... We might have feelings that this is wrong or that is unjust, but that's all it is, a personal feeling. If there's no God, on what possible basis could you object to the idea in the natural order of things that violence is unnatural? You know, even Charles Darwin himself had his doubts. Darwin said, with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of a man's mind, which has always been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? 
So you see, if you, if you don't believe in God, dealing with suffering and evil is as big of a problem, if not even a bigger problem, than if you do believe in God. Oxford and Cambridge scholar C.S. Lewis, in telling of how he came to faith in Jesus, he described how he had originally rejected the idea of God because of the cruelty of life. And then he came to realize that evil was even more problematic for his new atheism. In the end, he realized that suffering provided a better argument for God's existence than against it. Listen to what he wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. Many of you maybe have read this. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? (laughs) These ideas came from God. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. So if we have established some solid reasons for believing that God exists and that God is indeed good and that his lack of intervention and world events or in our own personal tragedies can be addressed from a theologically sound position, then what could be some reasons on a personal level that God would allow suffering in our lives? Our passage in Hebrews today speaks directly to this. Let's take another look. First few verses, we discover Jesus as our model for suffering and the means for enduring suffering. Let's look again at the beginning of chapter 12. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus, Jesus endured the cross. He endured torture and ridicule and pain at the hands of wicked people who hated him, wanted him dead. And like a pioneer, Jesus goes before us to show us how to live a life of faith that is focused on the greater good of God. And as the perfecter of our faith, Jesus was actually the means by which such a faith, such a way of life could even be possible for us. You and I, we must run this race that is marked out before us with all of its triumphs and joys and with all of its failures and with all of its pain. We can only run this race, though, if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Secondly, we're told to look at hardship and suffering as a part of how God disciplines us. Let's take a look again at verses five through eight, starting in the middle of verse five. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. 
Now, let's be clear. Not all suffering is discipline. But without experiencing God's discipline in our lives, you and I would miss out on what God really wants for us. Any parent can relate to the importance of disciplining your children if you want them to actually experience life. Let me ask you, why do you discipline your children? Well, one reason to discipline our children is to keep them safe, right? We say, Billy, don't run with scissors. You could hurt yourself. And Billy, of course, reaches for the scissors and he starts a running. What do we do? Well, we might try again and just give the command over again. The Bible is full of examples of how God did just that. But sooner or later, you have to discipline Billy. There's a consequence for Billy's actions. And my guess is that those consequences, they feel a whole lot like suffering to Billy. Another reason to discipline our children, of course, is to, is to shape them, right? To shape them in ways that are going to build in them the abilities to be good people who know their creator, who follow his will for their lives. And this can't be done without discipline, without boundaries, without intentionality. Again, as we read in Hebrews 12, picking up in verse 9, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us. We respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Our Heavenly Father wants to produce in us an amazing harvest of righteousness and peace. I find this passage helpful in my own wrestling with this question of evil and suffering. Could it be that sometimes God allows bad things to happen to good people in order for those people to become even better? even stronger, even more grateful, more faithful people? Of course, this is not the answer to give someone who is in the midst of pain and suffering. I would never go into a hospital room and tell someone that all their pain and their misery is for their own good. I'd never stand before you and try to explain away the tragedies and the atrocities of life with just a trite notion. No, pain is real. Suffering is real. Evil is real. But somehow, in the midst of it all, and maybe it isn't even until many years later that we might possibly begin to see just a glimpse of a reason for it and perhaps begin to find some redemptive connections between our deep suffering and God's discipline in our lives.
Can we begin to look at pain and suffering as opportunities rather than as problems? Now, you might be here this morning, listen carefully, and you might still be saying to yourself, well, so what? So what if suffering doesn't debunk God? Suffering still stinks. I don't like it. This doesn't get God off the hook. Listen now. God actually came to earth to deliberately put himself on the hook for human suffering. No other philosophy, no other religion will begin to make that kind of claim. In Jesus Christ, God experienced the greatest depths of pain. Therefore, though Christianity may not provide the reason for each of our experiences of pain, it does provide a very deep resource for those actually facing suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. So let's encourage each other when we go through difficulty and suffering by reminding each other that Jesus is with us through it all. And remember that his suffering and our suffering, they are only a part of the story, right? It didn't end with his suffering and death. It won't end with yours either. Remember the the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, whether you read the books or, or saw the movies, After the climax toward the end, Sam Gamgee, who has been through much hardship and much suffering, he discovers that his friend Gandalf is not dead as he thought, but he's alive. And he cries, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I myself was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Friends, on the other side of death, Jesus is alive. On the other side of your pain and your struggle, Jesus promises you a new life as well when everything sad will indeed become, oh, it's untrue. And that is great news. It is the best news that any of us could hear. So let's finish with this. Peter, his church knew suffering. Listen to his hopeful words for the early church and for you. Peter writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we have to admit that there are often times in life 
where we wonder, what is going on? When we consider our own suffering and the suffering that happens in the world, we begin to wonder what you are up to. But Lord, we pray that indeed your word would go deep into our hearts today and that we would come to that place of a strong answer that the suffering that we endure does not disprove you but shows that you are very real, that you have made us in such a way that we would feel and we would know right and wrong, justice and injustice, suffering and joy. Lord, we pray that you would lead us, lead us personally and lead us into conversations with others where we might have a strong and positive impact. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our First Prez podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at www.first-prez.org.